Welcome to the Beyond Devices podcast. My name is Jan Dawson and with me is Aaron Miller. This is our news roundup episode for the week and we've got four different topics that we're going to talk about for you today. Uh, first up, we've got a variety of Amazon news uh, from the announcement of their Echo Look device to uh, a, uh, another announcement this week that got slightly less coverage, which was about their subscribe with Amazon uh, service or hub. Uh, and then lastly, their earnings. So we have a few different things to talk about with Amazon Secondly, uh, this probably be a brief discussion, but Apple was reported by Recode to be looking into providing peer-to-peer payments and also possibly a debit card, which might just be a virtual debit card. Thirdly, I'm going to talk about some of the uh, mobile operators' earnings. So we had Verizon last week, T-Mobile and AT&T this week. I might also wrap some stuff about Comcast into that as well. And then fourthly, Twitter's earnings, which were kind of an interesting mix this time around as well. So those will be our four topics, and that should take us through the next sort of half hour or so of discussion. Um, we won't be talking about a lot of other earnings that happened this week. Um, I recorded the Tech Pinions podcast earlier, which I do every every other week or so. Uh, that should be up over the weekend sometime. So if you're interested in more discussion about earnings, uh, I and a couple of the other Tech Pinions Uh, authors had an interesting discussion about uh, several of the other companies' earnings uh, on that podcast. So it's worth checking out, worth checking out the Tech Opinions podcast in general if you're not already listening to that one. Let's kick things off, though, by uh, talking about the Amazon uh, topics that I mentioned. First up, uh, they announced this Echo Look device, which is basically another Echo device, but this one is uh, includes a camera um, that can take still or videos and is specifically being marketed as being able to take pictures of you in an outfit and then provide recommendations to you on whether or not the outfit looks good or compare two outfits or recommend other things that are similar and so on and so forth. So it's an interesting combination of uh, new hardware and then some interesting sort of AI machine learning stuff behind it. Um, Let's talk about that first of all. Aaron, what was your response to that one? Uh, I thought it was a creative idea. It's interesting how heavily marketed this is toward women. Um, there was one guy who sort of showed up in a couple quick like uh, cuts, and that was it. And it was essentially marketed toward women, um, which it will be an interesting play to watch and see how that works. Um, you know, because to this point, all of this stuff has been marketed um, in a in a gender neutral kind of way. Um, so it'll be interesting to see that. I think where Amazon really kind of blew it is earlier this week when a reporter asked about. And I wish I remember who it was that asked this. It just turned up on Twitter. But essentially, they asked, you know, what uh, what what's going to happen to the pictures? Are they going to be available to third parties? And uh, Amazon sort of had no comment on that. <laughs> and that's a dumb thing to do because these things, these always on, always listening devices, have always have always spurred concerns about privacy. And now you've got one with a camera attached to it. <laughs> <laughs> Probably so, in your bedroom. Yeah, exactly. And so I, I think uh, that was a that was a that was a dumb miss. It would have been really easy for them to have a good answer put together to say, no, we guarantee that these pictures will you know only ever be used by Amazon in, in a privacy protecting way. And th- it was a dumb thing to blow it on because that seemed like such an obvious question that everybody was going to ask when this thing was announced. Right. Yeah, absolutely agreed. No, it's one of those things where. You wonder to what extent this is just tech people being tech people, you know, like this is this great thing, look at all this amazing stuff it can do, and then kind of not really thinking about how ordinary people will respond to the idea of having a camera in their bedroom that is network connected. 
Um, and as you say, obvious questions that people would have, they don't seem to have satisfactory answers to. It seems like they're going to hold on to the images and the video indefinitely. There's no sort of, you know, we'll delete them after a certain period of time, which is sort of fairly typical for all data of this nature. Um, and as you say, no, no response for what happens in, with regard to third parties or anything either. So some obvious sort of privacy questions at the very least, if not concerns and, uh, and so on. But as you say as well, uh, innovative idea. And I think, you know, even though the Echo so far hasn't been marketed mostly to one gender or the other, I would guess that most of them have been bought by men who tend to be the early adopters of a lot of this technology. And um, this is an interesting way to kind of expand the appeal to women. As you say, most of the people in the video, the promotional video Amazon did, were women. And uh, it's an interesting compliment. I mean, the other interesting thing to think about is, you know, this is a device which will have updatable software, firmware, and so on. And so you now have a device with a camera. It's being marketed as being for fashion, but there's no particular reason why it can be a security camera or, um, you know, potentially some sort of intercom between rooms or be used for motion sensing as part of a smart home setup. You know, there's lots of other things you could do with it. Because it doesn't have a screen, it's not great for, say, video calling, but Amazon was also reported this week again to be working on an Echo device with a screen. So I think we're going to see lots of variations on the theme of Echo that are specialized for different things, and but that all sort of do the core Echo functions as well. This thing works just like the other Echo devices as well. So, um, you know, they'll all have common functions and then some will be more specialized. Um, the second thing that's worth mentioning is Amazon has been offering subscriptions of all kinds for quite some time now. Um, it does Amazon channels, which offers subscriptions to premium television channels, for example, as sort of add-on to Prime. Uh, but it's been offering other subscriptions for quite a while too. And this week they announced something called Subscribe with Amazon, which is sort of a hub for all the subscription stuff, both Amazon's own and third-party subscription stuff they offer. There's a lot there, and it kind of looks, if you go to the, the website for this, it looks almost like an app store. It even uses little rounded rectangles as, as the icons for the different things you can subscribe to. And it really feels like at this point, Amazon and Apple are the two companies that are really interested in being your sort of hub or your sort of aggregator for subscription stuff. And, you know, Amazon specifically uh, now launching this, but Apple back in January talked about, uh, I think, $2.7 billion last year from subscriptions through the App Store. Uh, so it's an increasingly important part of the business for both companies, both in terms of their own subscriptions and then sort of third party stuff that goes through their platforms. I hope what we start seeing from this is bundling with subscriptions where, um, you know, Amazon and Apple could do this too. They start to see what people tend to sign up for in groups and batches, and then there's right. discounted bundling. I, I think this is where, for example, TV may be headed um, in the sense that, you know, you, you, you can sign up for a premium channels bundle, for example, and and subscribe to all the premium channels at a discount in one shot. Um, you know, I, I hope this is where this is headed. I could see it being useful in all kinds of domains. The subscription model is increasingly important in the digital space, and and uh, I think bundling is a is a way to keep people uh, to keep these sticky because you may you may find yourself you're not watching one show or not reading one magazine as much as you thought, but because you're getting it cheap as part of a bundle, you're going to hold on to it. 
Yeah, it's an interesting thought, actually. And Apple obviously already offers app bundles, but they're single vendor, as it were. So, right. you know, if you're a game maker that has five different games, you might get a bundle like Tokoboka, which makes kids' games for the iPhone and iPad. They have bundles of their different games and so on, and they are often, to your point, offered at a discount. Uh, it wouldn't take a huge leap for them to do that kind of across vendors if they would get vendors to sort of partner together and offer a bundle that... You know, you could do an exercise bundle or you could do a gaming bundle or other things like that. And so it's not that much of a stretch. So it's a, that's an interesting idea. Yeah. And I think applied to subscriptions, it would have particular power, not just the one-time app purchases, but, you know, these renewing uh, payments. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, well, the last thing with regard to Amazon is they announced earnings as one of several, three big companies that announced earnings at the same time. Thursday afternoon, which was kind of fun to try to deal with. Um, <laughs> but uh, but Amazon's earnings generally pretty good, um, good growth year on year. Um, their operating margin continues to, to drop a bit after, you know, moving into positive territory. They're still there, but it's come down a little bit. Um, AWS is slightly less profitable at the moment. Um, the core e-commerce business grew slightly slower uh, in Q1 as it did in Q4 relative to the first three quarters of last year. To my mind, I think that's a reflection of the fact that some of the big sort of traditional retailers are fighting back more aggressively. They're sacrificing margin to some extent in pursuit of growth and trying to build more share uh, in online commerce. And so I think that's dented their growth just a tiny bit, but it's still very healthy growth. Um, there's some interesting, other interesting stuff in there too, and we probably don't have time to go into it now, but Amazon changed its segment reporting, so it's now providing a bit more transparency over its subscription businesses, which kind of goes along with what we were just talking about. Uh, most of that's obviously Prime, but some of it's things like Audible or Amazon Music or those third-party subscriptions. Uh, it also provides more transparency over third-party seller services, so fulfillment by Amazon and so on. Um, so there's some interesting additional detail in there too. Uh, was there anything that stood out to you, Aaron, from what you saw about the Amazon results? I'm surprised that they are still in um, in in profit taking mode. I, um, you know, they for a long stretch there were doing a ton of reinvestment of profits, and so they weren't reporting profits um, quarter after quarter. And then they kind of turned around and said, "Okay, now we're going to start taking profits and and reporting profits." I, I'm. I, I, I kind of have a feeling, and this isn't based on anything concretely grounded, but that uh, that they might go back to reinvestment mode pretty soon here. I've read that, that Jeff Bezos wants Amazon to be the first trillion-dollar market cap company. Hmm. Um, and to pull that off, they're going to have to build a bunch of new businesses. And, and it's interesting that, they've, that they are segmenting more of their reporting based around these businesses. I think you're going to see in the in the next two years with Amazon at least um, a lot more branching out this way and, uh, and and building a lot more businesses outside of retail. Um, yeah. Because I, I, think, I think they want it, they meaning the leadership of the company, want this to be a much bigger, broader uh, company than it is even now. Yeah, and what's interesting, I, I kind of was asked about this by a reporter yesterday and it kind of got me thinking about it. You know, Amazon and Google are two companies that have these enormously profitable core businesses and have used those to invest in other things. I think the big difference is with Amazon, it all kind of hangs together still, whereas at, at Google or Alphabet now, 
it doesn't in quite the same way. They've, they've got a lot of really far-flung stuff that really has no direct connection from a sort of product or ecosystem perspective. It may leverage some of the same skills on the back end in terms of machine learning or something like that. But uh, with Amazon, it all kind of ties back in in some way. You know, even AWS was obviously built off the back of the servers Amazon was using for its own, you know, Amazon.com business. And so, um, you know, almost everything they've done ties back into that, reinforces the value of their ecosystem and so on in a way that Alphabet's sort of disparate stuff doesn't quite so much. Yeah, it's the difference between a conglomerate and a single company. And yeah. uh, and I, I think Amazon, I, I don't want to say they're going to look more like a conglomerate in the sense that we'll think of them as one, but mm. it definitely feels like they're moving that direction increasingly. I think they yeah. they seem a lot more willing um, to be trying a lot of different ideas and products and businesses and and very deliberately building these as they go along. Right. Uh, yeah. You know whether it's Prime Video or it's online retail or it's uh, you know the the Echo. Right. They, I mean they're they're mm-hmm. they're 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 moving much more deliberately and intentionally in a lot of different directions than they have. Right. It, you know for the first you know, 20 years or whatever their company. So, yeah, yeah, no, absolutely. Um, okay. Well, let's move on to this Apple story. This was reported by recode. Um, and the story was that Apple was in talks with a variety of different companies about, uh, creating a peer to peer payment service. So, um, like Venmo, which is probably one of the most popular ones out there. Square cash is another example. Uh, and then some of the card issuers and banks have their own. So chase has one, for example, um, so they're supposed to be working on that and then also potentially on a debit card. And this debit card may or may not be a piece of plastic. It may just be virtual and only used in Apple Pay. But the idea is it would give you a way to spend money that people send you through the peer-to-peer payment service. So sort of the two are connected in that sense. And none of those things is obviously unprecedented. Obviously, peer-to-peer payments is a very familiar model at this point. And, uh, and Square, for example, already has a virtual debit card that you can use in much the same way through Apple Pay as it happens. Um, and you know, Amazon, to kind of turn things around a bit, Amazon recently introduced a, a card that you can top up in stores and then use online uh, on Amazon.com if you don't have a traditional debit card or credit card. So you know, there's lots of interesting attempts to kind of tie the virtual and physical worlds together. Uh, some of them also tied to peer-to-peer payments. And, and you know, peer-to-peer has seemed like an obvious next step for Apple Pay kind of right from the beginning, uh, given the popularity of that, given what a big network they already have built around iMessage and so on. So it's logical and in some ways surprising they haven't got into it before now. Uh, but one of the obvious sort of questions about all of this is why Apple would do it because it's clearly not a money spinner. I mean, even Apple Pay with the commissions they take is a fairly small source of revenue for Apple, even at at fairly decent scale. Peer-to-peer payments generally don't charge anything. Therefore, there's no money in it. A debit card would have a very tiny sort of processing fee attached, but that would be about it. So it's worth thinking about that. We'll probably talk about that a bit. But Aaron, what was your response to this? Well, I think it's natural to wonder why Apple would do this because they could never have, you know, the majority of the market in this because the majority of people don't have iPhones. And of that subset of people that have iPhones, there are a lot that have never bothered with Apple Pay, have never set it up, have never tried it. I, I think there are two mm-hmm. reasons why this is a smart move by Apple. One is that um, it builds the ecosystem and there's always upside to that for Apple. Um, just like iMessage, you know, you wonder what's the point of iMessage if everybody has text messaging anyway. Well, it turns out a lot of people prefer iMessage and, you know, the people, their iPhone users love texting, messaging people with iPhones because they get the blue bubbles and 
they just generally like the way that works. And there's a lot of power in that. I think this feeds into that. But I think there's another reason that this is smart on Apple's part. And it has to do with how the, um, you know, there's always going to be a group of iPhone users that drag their feet or never really bother with Apple Pay. They get their new phone. They go through the process of setting it up. They skip the part about Apple Pay, and then they never come back to try it. I think this is a chance to use existing Apple Pay users to get other people to try it. So if I have Apple Pay set up and and uh, I want to make a payment to my mother-in-law who doesn't have it set up, this might be the way to make that happen. Because I, right. I tell her, hey, this is a really easy way for me to send you money, set this up really fast. And then, you know, my mother-in-law or whoever else I'm trying to send money to with an iPhone does this. And I think it actually has a chance to push Apple Pay adoption. Again, this isn't a huge moneymaker, but it entrenches people into the Apple ecosystem, it, you know. Apple may never make very much money on Apple Pay as a as a business or as a platform, but I really like it. And every time I have a chance to use it, the register, I prefer it to pulling out my wallet. And not just for the convenience factors, but also for the security factors. I had I had to get a new debit card twice in one year because Home Depot and Target got hacked in that same year right. sequentially with yeah. my new debit card. And 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 um, that's keeping me on an iPhone. But it's not the only thing, but it's part of it, and and mm-hmm. and that's the that's I think the 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 smart move in this is that if I get other people to sign up for Apple Pay so that I can send them a payment, it increases the likelihood of those people in turn using it at the register and realizing it's great, and then they and then they stay stuck on their iPhone. Right. Yeah. No. Absolutely. I think this is really an ecosystem play to answer that question. Uh, you know, much the same way you have. It's about making the iPhone ecosystem stickier, about about also continuing a trend that we've seen from Apple over the last couple of years of, of taking things that are provided by third-party apps and services and bringing them in-house um, as well. So, you know, with the, with the Siri extensions and so on that Apple announced last year, you can now send money using your voice through Siri through some of the third-party services, but it's not quite the same as doing it in an integrated fashion and adding more value to the ecosystem and especially creating greater network effects because this is only really probably going to be useful if you have an iPhone and the person you're sending it to has one. Um, and so this kind of helps with that as well. But yeah, this is really about the ecosystem and about, I think, to some extent, Apple gaining greater control over the elements of a service over time too. I mean, the debit card element uh, would be an example of that where, you know, at this point, the card issuers and banks have a big role in Apple Pay and Apple really just has a minimal sort of one layer role in it. Um, they could extend further into that, have greater control, which would then potentially over time give them other opportunities to do more things uh, in payments as well. Well, let's move on to talking about earnings uh, a little bit more. We're talking about mobile earnings or some of the telecoms operators that announced earnings. I might mention Comcast in this context too. Uh, we had Verizon last week. We had T-Mobile and AT&T this week. Uh, probably Verizon's worst quarter ever by some margin in terms of the tr- sort of traditional phone business. Uh, AT&T kind of struggled a little bit both in phone and TV. Uh, T-Mobile had another great quarter. I mean, they're, they're seeing slowing growth around phones because market growth is slowing, frankly, and that continues to be one of the big sort of questions around T-Mobile long term is kind of what they do when phone growth dries up entirely. Um, Comcast, uh, I mentioned briefly, they had a good quarter and, and there's some interesting stuff there around bundling, which I think is worth talking about. Um, but yeah, interesting set of earnings. Uh, in general, you know, th- this was, we said a few weeks back when we saw Verizon and AT&T uh, 
release unlimited services again, having resisted that for several years. This was going to be a really interesting quarter and a really interesting year. And we've now seen kind of both why they did that and what the outcome was. And with Verizon, they were having an even worse quarter up until the point where they suddenly caved and reversed course on Unlimited and, and reintroduced it. Um, they turned things around a little bit, but things were really bad. They are having by far their worst quarter ever in terms of losses of phone customers. And that helps explain why they really felt they had no option but to get back into the unlimited game. They did turn things around in the second half a little bit and had a better trend there. And that is somewhat promising going forward. But uh, AT&T, interestingly, you know, they were having an OK quarter and then things got worse. And when they reintroduced unlimited, they say they basically just got back to where they'd been at the beginning of the quarter. So whereas it seemed like there was some potential for them to really drive faster growth off the back of Unlimited. Really, all they've done is tread water as a result of all these changes, which is kind of interesting because they've also kind of capped their ability to grow revenues and so on to some extent. Um, as I say, T-Mobile had a good quarter, um, some slowing in phone growth again, which we've seen before. And again, that's, that's because of overall, uh, basically most people in the US now have a phone who are ever going to have one. There's a small sort of generational effect there. But other than that, pretty minimal growth. Uh, but another big theme was slowdown in smartphone uh, smartphone adoption. Uh, just again, most people have one, are keeping it. Uh, people are keeping the ones they have for longer, and so on. And um, you know that is the single reason why AT and T is no longer going to provide revenue guidance going forward because the revenue associated with devices is so unpredictable. So lots of interesting trend there. Any thoughts from you, Aaron, on this subject? Well, I I mean it sounds really weird to say, and maybe again this is the the uh, angsty Sprint customer. We've talked about that before. Mm -hmm. I get a good deal on it from my employer, but I don't love it. But I do like that there are signs of competition actually working. Um, you know, that T-Mobile is able to put pressure onto Verizon and AT&T to change their product offerings in a way that requires them to, to be more attentive to what customers want. I just like seeing signs of competition in the industry because it's not exactly a hotbed of innovation and competition. And so it's it's, mm -hmm. it's good to see that to see signs of that still happening. I don't think Verizon and AT and T seem to be in any you know dramatic risk of being unseated in, in, as far as their market positions are concerned. But I do like seeing them feeling a need to respond to market pressure and make changes yeah. in what their offerings are. And I and I hope that continues. I, it, it's it's a shame that our wireless industry in the U.S. is so dominated by so few people, uh, by f so few companies, and. And so it's comforting to see signs of competition and working in the industry. Yeah, it's interesting because we've seen a lot of consolidation over the last few years, not just in the U.S., but in other markets around the world as well, where there are a number of markets that had about basically four carriers for a long time. And then when 3G came along, a lot of them added another one, got up to five. And over the last few years, a lot of those markets have all gone down to three. Uh, and in some cases, even some of the ones that are left are sharing network infrastructure and that kind of thing. So there has been that consolidation as the market growth has started to evaporate. And, you know, we're likely to see more of that here in the U.S. now, too, as a combination of things. Uh, I think we mentioned this when we talked about Spectrum recently, but uh, yesterday, the 27th of April, uh, the quiet period associated with the Spectrum auction here in the U.S. ended, which means that these companies can all now start talking to each other again. Uh, and a lot of people are expecting that to lead to some merger activity, especially because the new U.S. administration is more favorable towards big mergers and so on. So we could see some more consolidation and sprints, an obvious company to be involved in that. T-Mobile would be another one. Um, the other thing that's interesting is um, that AT&T TV subscribers kind of dropped. And uh, 
they've been falling slightly, but but very close to sort of flat. Um, and they've got two different TV businesses. They've got the traditional AT and T Uverse business that use their, uses the their copper and fiber wiring uh, to homes to deliver service. And they basically stopped investing in that since they bought Directv. Uh, and so what you've seen is rapid growth in DirecTV and then uh, rapid decline at AT&T's old-style TV service, and the two have basically cancelled each other out. But this quarter they saw a big dip, and the official reason for that was uh, these were mostly subscribers where AT&T couldn't offer anything but wireless in addition to TV. So it's outside of the footprint where AT&T can offer broadband and, and phone service to homes. It really, the only bundle it can offer is wireless and TV, and that really isn't a bundle that people are going for. Uh, even though they've got fairly big discounts and they give you free HBO and various other things, uh, people aren't really going for that bundle. And then Comcast reported and they said, you know, they basically their, their penetration of bundles is increasing and they started reporting their home automation uh, subscribers and so on this, this quarter as well. It's about a million of those that they've got now. Um, and so they're really emphasizing bundling and doing very well with that. And so it kind of calls into question a little bit AT&T's acquisition of DirecTV, which I was always a bit skeptical of because they couldn't offer the kind of bundle that customers actually want to buy, which is broadband and TV, not wireless and TV. Um, in time, things like 5G will make it possible for AT&T to offer you know, a broadband replacement through wireless uh, as part of a bundle. That's going to take several years still. So some interesting sort of tensions there and dynamics around bundling as well. Well, let's talk about Twitter earnings just to kind of wrap things up. Um, you know, familiar trends in some ways, um, but some changes as well. So this was Twitter's strongest growth quarter for uh, monthly active user numbers for two years. They added 9 million new monthly active users. Q1's traditionally a strong quarter for them, so it tends to be higher. But even in that context, it was quite a bit higher than the same quarter last year. Um, but at the same time, they saw their first ever revenue decline year on year uh, and fairly substantial. I think it was 14% down or something. It wasn't as bad as some people were expecting, but Twitter had kind of set up for a bad quarter last quarter on their earnings call when they said they were going to be ending some of their ad products and so on. That was going to have an impact on revenue. So this was anticipated, but of course what that means is with revenue, with user growth and revenue decline, it means their revenue per user is going down, and that's very much the case if you look at the numbers. They'd been flatlining for a while, and now they've actually declined. And so some real struggles around monetization, and they're working through some stuff that they say is gaining traction with advertisers. They say they're doing a better job proving out the ROI for advertising on Twitter, and they've got quite a few new advertisers uh, making upfront commitments to spending money on the platform and so on. Uh, but we're kind of at the stage where we have to take Twitter's word for that. Um, and they're making this argument that through the rest of the year, we're going to continue to see declines from the kind of legacy ad products that they're de-emphasizing and then eventually growth from some of the new stuff they're doing, including live video. Uh, but there's very little concrete evidence of that. Really, the only positive trend there's a lot of concrete evidence of is that user growth where uh, monthly active users did grow better and then daily active users, which they don't report directly, but they report growth in daily active users, and that number's been uh, accelerating, which is another big positive sign because it in indicates um, increased engagement as well because that number's growing faster than the monthly user number. Um, so a few interesting trends there. But Aaron, what was your take on those Twitter results? You know, I worry that it's just going to entrench the, the very slow cycle of innovation at Twitter. That they've had user that they've had a nice bump in user growth, and I worry that they're going to keep thinking that the magic 
rest the, the magic solution or the secret recipe to revenue is still somewhere in their current product offering. What I don't get is, you know, why they can't see or seem to not be able to see that there is there's not a good advertising model in their current product mix. If there was, they would have found it by now. There are a lot of smart people who have been thinking about this for a long time. And it's I just have a hard I I'm obviously a huge skeptic about Twitter's business side. I, I think the service is great, but that's the problem is that it's great in ways that don't that don't lead to good advertising returns and uh and they've got to do new things new product mixes i think you know i think one of the worst things that ever happened to twitter ironically was this oprah moment years ago when when they sort of exploded in user growth um you know where that oprah moment pointing everybody at twitter was this landmark thing and now fast forward years later all that emphasis on user growth didn't it, for whatever reason, and I, maybe it didn't play into this directly, but for whatever reason, they just weren't innovating in in in, in terms of their the, their core product. You know, the reason Facebook has become the advertising juggernaut that it has become is because they were have been constantly tweaking and improving and adding to what Facebook is capable of and giving a lot more vectors for advertisers to engage, and Twitter doesn't. It still seems to not be doing that. I think their live video play um, is the right spirit, if not itself a good idea. But there's just not enough of that happening still. And and having having a nice quarter in user growth, I don't know, feels like a distraction because it's not solving any core underlying problems. Their problem is not getting more users into the service. Their problem is figuring out how to give advertisers productive ways to engage with users. Yeah, no, it, it's it's one of those sort of befuddling things where this is one of the most popular services and successful services from a user perspective in terms of generating value for users and all the rest of it, and yet seems to be perennially unable to monetize that, and and that's their single biggest challenge. And there's really not much evidence of that changing, although they did talk this past week about, uh, I think it was the day before earnings, and did an interview with BuzzFeed, if I recall correctly, where they talked about um, trying to get basically 24-7 live video on the platform, which, you know, is possible certainly, but it's not all going to be compelling. And that's the thing. It's, it's not enough to have live video. You've got to have compelling live video. And that's been one of their big challenges so far is a lot of the live video they've had is not that exciting. It's Bloomberg or it's Cheddar or it's, you know, business news or whatever. Uh, some of, you know, it's lacrosse or other sort of more marginal sort of niche sports interests. They did have... NFL games on Thursday nights last year, but they lost that deal to Amazon this year. Um, so they're, they're increasing the volume, but it's not necessarily all that compelling. And I think, you know, whereas people have the TV on in the background at home, uh, I don't think that's the value proposition with Twitter. I think it really has to be valuable video for people to tune in. Otherwise, they're just not going to bother. It's a distraction ultimately. And so I think, you know, if they're going to increase the volume, they need to find ways to make that more interesting content as well. And unless they do, frankly, it's not going to drive much ad revenue at all. All right, well, let's wrap up there. We've given you half hour or so of, of analysis of this week's news. As usual, we'll have uh, links and so on in the show notes to, to various things that we've talked about. Uh, as in the past, there'll be links mostly to the Tech Narrative site that I run where I write comments on most of these news stories as they happen. So uh, well, there'll be links to those 
Um, as always, thank you for listening. We welcome your feedback and, and reviews and so on on iTunes and Overcast and elsewhere. So if you do enjoy the show, um, then please give us a recommendation or rating. Uh, if you have some constructive feedback for us, we'd love to hear from you. Again, in the show notes, you'll find uh, Twitter handles and email addresses and so on to, to be able to provide that feedback. So thanks for being with us and we'll talk to you again next week. Bye-bye.